Hello, my name is Dotun Holo Poroku, and this is Building the Future Podcast. believe the African story will be written by Africans and there are people crafting the narrative now. This podcast is a series of conversations with people whose ideas and work is shaping the African future. My guest today is Elo Gia Imbelu. She's the founding managing director and CEO of Endeavor Nigeria. Endeavor is a mission-oriented global organization that is supporting high-impact entrepreneurship in close to 40 underserved markets across the world. Elo and I got introduced a few years ago when she started her role with Endeavor Nigeria, and I find her intellectual honesty very refreshing. You can get more of our thoughts on our Twitter landu at GM. In this episode, we discussed her early career journey as an investment banker and then in private equity focused on African growth companies. We discussed her perspectives on the infrastructure and the regulatory challenges of building startups to scale up in Africa. We also discussed the opportunities that COVID presents for accelerating digital demands on the continent and how to set up a board of directors at different stages of a company life. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. Welcome to Building the Future podcast. Thanks, Dr. Good to be here. It's been a long time coming. I've always admired your work from distance and I've always be fascinated with what you do especially even your pop as well that you sometimes put on social media on twitter especially and elicits a lot of conversation and debate and, and span across not just work but also life and how people should view things so i always find that fascinating so i want to start with mm-hmm. your journey where you started okay it's been good to just know <laughs> the story how you got to where you are right now Sure. So the quick answer to that question is that I was born in Nigeria. I moved to the UK at, I think, 14, 15 to finish up secondary school to do my first degree. And I worked in the UK probably, what, seven years or so. Took a break, came back to Nigeria, took a break, (laughs) went back to the UK. And I've been back and forth a little bit, but very much born, bred in Nigeria. I've read a little bit about your career progression, but I want to know how you got into this endeavor, your personal career journey, and how that led you to where you are right now. Yeah, it's a really interesting story. You mentioned Twitter and and tweets. I was reading a tweet yesterday or day before. Somebody said, I'm still trying to figure out what I want to be when I grow up, to be honest. And someone who sits on my board, Andrew Ali, responded saying, yeah, me too. And I've been CEO of two firms. And it made me smile because, you know, sometimes you see tweets that kind of remind you that it's okay. So my journey has been a little bit checkered in that it took me a while to find my way to sort of this scale-up ecosystem work now. And I'm certainly loving it. I started in investment banking. Um, so my first job was an investment banking job in London. Um, I spent a bit of time in what at the time was called our consumer products team, which basically meant, you know, origination and diversified sort of products for consumer companies, specifically CPG, that kind of stuff, like uh, Cadbury, et cetera. And then, like I said, a bit of time in the M&A team as well. That was with Credit Suisse. Did that for a few years. And then actually, interestingly, I saw there was a role with Credit Suisse in Nigeria. And so I came back to do that. But then very quickly, I think I just saw opportunity outside of Credit Suisse. I remember at the time when Renaissance Capital had just started their investment banking team, someone to join on the M&A side. I believe I was hire number three or four. So that was a long time ago now. Was that um, in Nigeria so I moved across, as well? 
in Nigeria, yes. So I was in Nigeria, went from Credit Suisse to Rencap, and I, again, was M&A. But that was the first time that I was able to work exclusively with African companies. Of course, it's investment banking. Your clients tend to be sort of top tier blue chip clients. But that was the first time I started working with Echo Bank and First Bank and, you know, some of the internet service providers, and some of the mobile network operators, the early ones, and really loved it. I just found that, you know, at the time I didn't know it, but in retrospect, I look back on it and I say, you know, part of what was so exciting is it was half back home in many ways. So that was great. Did that for a few years. And then interestingly, one of our clients was First Bank. They just appointed a new CEO, Emil Lamidus, and is here at the time. And he basically started to do quite a bit of work around his strategy and his vision for First Bank. And it's not an open secret at this point. I think everyone really knows that at some point, you know, First Bank many years ago, um, probably about 10, 12 years ago, First Bank was talking about doing a merger with Echo Bank. So one of his big, big projects was he wanted to merge with Echo Bank and he wanted to all of these subsidiaries. But anyway, he was hiring a few people. So he invited me to join as the head of corporate development. They hadn't had the role before. I joined to do that, built a team, a very small team, four or five people. But really anything that was inorganic with regard to their growth strategy was within my purview and remit. So that meant a little bit of M&A. So some of their first acquisitions they did outside of Nigeria, we did. And so specifically, they bought a bank in the DRC. They also bought a regional bank in about three or four, so actually five or six markets. And then started an insurance subsidiary, reached the entire structure into this the holding company that they have today, things like that. So that was pretty interesting. The motivation to move from, I guess, an advisory role into corporate was really about being closer to the companies and being closer to their growth and being closer to helping them achieve their growth objectives. I think that was also the period though that I realized that the blue chip corporate space was not so compelling for me. I think by the time organizations unfortunately get to a certain size and scale, there's all kinds of complexity, unnecessary complexity, right? So whether it is operational complexity, whether it's political complexity, I just found that the environment wasn't for me personally agile enough. And so I went back to the drawing board. I knew a couple of things. I knew that I was very happy working with companies. I was very happy helping them achieve their objectives. I liked working with African companies. Um, I liked being in Nigeria, but I needed to figure out a way to do it in a way that, again, brought me closer to what ultimately is the mission. So anyway, took a break, went back to get an MBA. Of course, private equity is is the way to go, right? You turn around and say, okay, I'm going to sit on the sell side. I'm going to work with private equity. We're going to find all these great companies in Africa and Nigeria, et cetera. So I started working at General Atlantic, which is a growth private equity firm. And I was lucky enough that I was hired to basically help them go from zero to one to two in their portfolio of African investments at the growth stage. But I think this was the beginning of my journey to realizing that we don't really have is vibrant enough. It's coming now. But at this time, this was nine years ago, eight, nine years ago, we didn't really have, so it was really really the beginnings of what I call the first wave of startups, which were predominantly e-commerce businesses in Nigeria. But there wasn't a scale-up to growth transition yet that a GA, who was a growth equity investor, could really be a part of fundamentally. So we did do a couple of deals. We ended up buying a payments competitor into Switches, a business called Emerging Markets Payments Holdings. There was never really anything that was low capex, high growth model. You could deploy these $50 million checks into minority stakes in these businesses, right? And I think that's coming, by the way, but it just, that market capacity wasn't there. You were either deploying the money into listed equities, which as a growth equity firm, it's a little bit weird, or you were looking at heavy infrastructure, heavy CapEx models, whether it was, you know, cell phone towers, right? Or manufacturing and banks themselves are actually pretty, pretty, um, capital intensive businesses or traditional banking models. So that was really all there was to deploy that kind of capital into. So but we struggled with thesis and we struggled with models. We struggled with 
with the growth rates. So we, like I said, we did one deal, two deals, but I think for me, that was really the cement that I needed just to help me make that skip from growth to scale up. It's for me, it was an intersection, right? an intersection between wanting to be closer to Nigeria, wanting to work with Nigerian companies, wanting to be inspired by the founders that I worked with, wanting to help them solve real challenges and wanting to be part of something that was a bit differentiated as well. So that was kind of the beginnings of the lead to scale up. And interestingly, that was the time that I met some of the founders that I, I quite admire today. So that was the time I first met Dim Shagaya um, of Conga. At the time, Conga was a bit too early for her to switch. Um, I remember that was when I met Paga. Um, Tayo had just about just started out. I think it was a couple of years into his Paga journey. So it was great, like, because a couple of the companies that I admired even then and some of the founders that I thought, you know, these guys are doing really, really great things are founders that are now within the scale-up remit um, that I have, right, in terms of the stage of their companies, in terms of, you know, being sort of at sort of in C, for example. Some of them, of course, B and C stages. They've built their companies to pretty exciting levels. Was it long to see the LSETF work in the interim, but as to frankly Endeavor, I was lucky. So Endeavor, the decision to open up Endeavor in Nigeria was something that predated me. So the decision was made, right? So the next question was, well, who can we get to find to found the business in Nigeria? Start the business, hire the team, build it out. And frankly, if a cousin of mine happened to be in the flow of a conversation team at Endeavor and you know said I've got the perfect person for you sent me the DD and I remember he had it saying, yeah, sure, I'll send this around and ask if anybody's interested in going on this journey with Endeavor. And he kind of said, well, actually, I meant, and I thought, you know what, this is actually pretty interesting because scale up, Nigeria, entrepreneurial, you know, what more could you ask? Well, I've been on this Endeavor journey now two years, I think, roughly. Um, started in, in early 2018. That's good. As you're talking about your experience at GA, and I've got lots of questions that I wanted to ask before, mm-hmm. but I, I'm getting stuck in that place. I want to double click on GA and your experience. You mentioned a few things that I also know. Maybe 10 years ago or 8 years ago, there are very few companies in Nigeria that are true startups. Uh, a lot of companies are coming up, but this is quite early. The ecosystem was just getting built and there were very few validation of that. But then there are a couple of private equity firms who are also doing something, who are maybe investing in some of the things that you mentioned. But my question is, when those funds were coming to Nigeria, when they were starting, what was the thesis and what was the expectation? I know sometimes your thesis might not match up with, with what you have on ground. But what was the original thesis that they had in terms of the kind of company that they raised money from their LPs for? Um, so I guess just take a step back and say GA doesn't have any regional pools of capital. It's a really interesting model. Like the LPs are sort of family offices in the same way as you might have in a fund. But a lot of their capital, about 30% of their capital is permanent capital from you know, family offices, foundations, et cetera, HNI. So what that means is that the thesis is growth. There are a couple of trends that at the time anyway, that they were following, right? And they were following those trends globally. Whether it was, for example, digitization trends, which would make a case for e-commerce businesses in China, for example, or whether it was also things like, I think GA was one of the very early investors in some of these video on demand platforms as well. The point being, digitization was a big theme, right, across the different markets. In Latin America, lots of e-commerce in the portfolio at the time, but also in China as well. But we liked marketplaces, we liked Klarna, that was a portfolio company at the time. So we also liked the credit businesses tacked on to like we loved remittances. So we looked at quite a few remittances businesses. And those kinds of sort of asset light models that were basically taking advantage of this sort of rise in sizeization across 
primarily sort of on the consumer side. And I think that was the play, frankly, for Africa slash Nigeria, right? The expectation was that you would see a similar trend in Nigeria, Africa. And I think that it was the same expectation that the e-commerce players who were building in Nigeria had, right? It was the same expectation that the payments companies who were building wallets and, and things like that in Nigeria at the time had, which was that you had this shift online and that you were going to see some of those growth curves on account of it. There is a set of rails and there's a set of infrastructure that those kinds of things need to get built on. It's not just about 200 million people, X percent internet penetration, et cetera, et cetera. I think in practice, what we found was quite a bit of resistance. And I think that's still the case to a certain extent in Nigeria. Quite a bit of resistance, quite a lot, quite a lot of frictions, should I say, with regards to actually those kinds of trends bearing themselves out. I think seven years later, interestingly, including one of my current thought streams at the moment is around what this entire crisis, COVID dynamic means for digital demand in Nigeria. And I think it's broadly ultimately going to be positive. And I think that the infrastructure is now much more so there. So I think, you know, we were, like I said, seven, eight years too early. But there was no Africa fund. Um, there was a global fund. So when you find that you are, those trends are playing themselves out in Latin America and then playing themselves out in Asia, but they are frictions in Nigeria um, or in Africa, then of course, you know, because you don't have one fund, you also don't have a, a traditional fund. So you're not restricted by your fund rules that says you have to deploy this capital in Africa. And so you look at a towers deal, for example, in Nigeria, China, right? And you also look at Facebook and you look at those businesses and you'll, you'll decide which ones you think give you the better return. I think that's fundamentally what happened for us. And what was the ticket size on average that they were expecting to maybe to deploy in Nigeria? They time? were looking to deploy at the growth stage. So again, remember, you know, that you have your startup, you have your, you know, super early. So you have your pre-seed, your seed, your series A, series B, blah, blah, blah. And then you would have your growth stage, right? Uh, and then you'd have your IPO. So we were investing at the growth stage. We were looking to do checks of $50 million plus. And I remember at the time, in terms of where the capacity was to absorb that kind of capital, basically from a high growth technology perspective, it was into switch, right? Like that. And if you think about, I mean, compare that time to now, how many businesses do you think might be able to take that $50 check in Nigeria? <laughs> I think there's probably a handful. Okay. At least in that sort of hand, I want to say handful. I think there's probably comfortably, from a high growth perspective, right? So, you know, not your infrastructure heavy models, capital intensive models. So high growth, low capex business models. I would say they're probably five, seven that could absorb that kind of capital today. But like, you know, I have a pretty good view on who those ones might be. What would you say has changed? I mean, I've got a view on different things. I started coming to Nigeria five years ago and engaging with the ecosystem. And a lot of things has changed. And it's been more capital, more dynamics and founded. But fundamentally, what has actually changed? Because the economy has not significantly improved since that time either. So in your opinion, what has happened now that it's given room to more companies now to be able to take that amount of capital? I think in as much as the economy itself has not grown, I think a number of these founders have just done a phenomenal job with regards to just delivering those outsized by, frankly, iterating through their models, by potentially thinking about doing things and building out what looks and feels like infrastructure um, to support the growth of their businesses in a way that their peers typically don't have to do in other markets. What I mean by that, let me give you an example. Paga today, right? If I mean, I don't know, you'd have to ask Tyro, but my guess is that if Paga was getting started today, he probably 
would say, look, I can do this thing on the back of building a consumer payments app, right? And then just growing a consumer payments app. But of course, the problem that he wanted to solve was earlier than that. The problem that he wanted to solve was the fact that none of us were online with our money. We were all walking around the world with cash. His origin story is around how he was date that he had all this cash. And, um, so he needed to build out the agent network. And that took a while to build. That took a while to get it profitable. That got it took a while to see the adoption and also to prove the, the, the shift, right? As he introduced the, the banking app, it took a while to prove that, first of all, consumers would shift um, successfully across those two things. But that takes time. So I think that happened, right? So I think there's there's also something around sort of the, the resilience and the grit and the commitment of the founders that have been sort of, you know, that have built these companies that are now at scale of state. I think the other thing you're right is capital. Um, I think that there is more capital. You mentioned, for example, you said there were a couple of other firms that were in the market, but were the expectations? One of them, for example, was a Helios, right? But at the time, there was Helios, there was Africa Capital Alliance. There wasn't much going on at the earlier stages, right? So if you look at some of these cap tables of, of what are scale-up companies today, some of them include angels. You have significant angel investors in there, for example, or they have um, a number of family offices and HNI, etc. It's today that when you look at some of the cap tables, or when you look at most of the cap tables, we've got early stage VCs, we've got what So the capital also came, and so they were able to sort of get to Series A, and the capital met them there. So I think it's also, you know, interestingly, it always takes you guys if you look at how long it takes them to raise a certain amount of capital. Of course, in Africa, it takes fundamentally just you know, multiples longer than it might take a founder at a similar stage because the growth is also there for a founder at a similar stage in a different market much, much faster. I think the other thing that changed also was some adoption. There's much better adoption just in general with, you know, there's much better penetration, first of all, internet, obviously, there's much better distribution of smartphones, for example, but of course, there's also much better adoption. I remember at the time coming to Nigeria, one of the things that we spent quite a lot of time was why so many digital payments transactions failed. And at the time, all the digital payment transactions were cards, right? So I just couldn't understand why. And I remember at the time, it never happens now, but I remember at the time sitting, having dinner, finishing paying dinner, and paying, we'd be there for another 30 minutes trying to pay. So it was kind of what the problem they were trying to solve was. But the point is that there were so many other frictions around what they were trying to do, right? And if you're somebody who has used your card once, that's failed multiple times, the next person who says to you, I've built this great app, this great platform, try it, you will not fail. You think to yourself, no, I've kind of been there, done that, I'd rather just handle my cash. Even me, I was kind of in that mindset for a long time. So I think all of those kinds of, you know, the consumers fundamentally, their behavior also started to shift. And the great thing is a lot of these founders kind of stuck with it, right? And they now have these chunky businesses that can absorb that kind of capital. You know, you can't have a scale-up ecosystem unless you have a vibrant startup ecosystem. The good news is this small community of scale-up founders really in many ways, I think, have now paved the way, frankly, for a lot of the startups that we're, we're looking at now to grow much faster than they were able to accumulate, cap- they were accumulate capital much faster than they were able to and then sort of grow into this sort of scale-up ecosystem as well. The final thing I'll say is that the, one of the reasons that I'm quite intrigued by a scale-up ecosystem in Nigeria is that if you look at Europe and the UK, they are now, in the last five years or so, are now talking about their scale-up ecosystem, right? Because, again, those startups have come of age in many ways. So I think the time is right for us just also to spend a bit of time making sure that we're supporting the scale-ups and helping them get from scale-up to growth, from growth to IPO. It's interesting that interest rates still haven't IPO'd. You know, so they'll get there. And we need more companies to also then follow very quickly. The one of the striking thing that you talked about there that actually came up for me is about that over that time, 
a lot of founders have removed yeah. frictions and just chipping away mm-hmm. into the problem and removing friction one, one step at a time. And it's almost like um, you're building uh, on top of what other people have built or you're, you're increasing the body of what, what yeah. in academia. When you do research, say you, you want to add to the body of knowledge. You might not be able to answer yeah, all the right. questions, but somebody else can pick up from where you start and else then do, you do that. Yeah. And a good example of that would be the e-commerce play in Nigeria where People like Sim Chagaya and Jimmy try to do everything because that's the only way they can do it. They have to be their payment, they have to be their logistics, uh-huh. they have to build ordering, they have to build trust, they have to do all of that. And I think if they are doing it now, if, let's say e-commerce is starting uh-huh. now in Nigeria or someone will start that e-commerce at that scale, they wouldn't do all of those things that those guys have done because a lot of it has been uh-huh. built. Payment, we have People like uh, Paystack and Flutterwave doing that. And we have logistics like Max. Now you can pick, right? Yes. Now you can choose and pick. And you can say, I want to work with Flutterwave on my payments. I want to work with uh, Paystack on my payments. It's, it, I remember conversations with Sim at this time, right? And Sim was like, he was talking about building Conga Pay, building Conga Delivery. I forget what the delivery network was called. He was building out 3PL. He was buying bikes. He was buying buses to deliver. I remember he was growing so quickly. One of our massive issues when we were sort of looking at the business from a stage perspective and its ability to grow perspective was saying, this business is growing so quickly. Is there the logistics 3PL infrastructure to deliver this stuff? And at the time, he was going faster than DHL was able to cope with. He was going faster. So those guys were delivering for him as well as his own EPL, but he was still getting stuck. Today, it's interesting. Well, coronavirus, we've been sitting at home for a month. I'm ordering drinks. I'm ordering food from RSVP or wherever. And also, I'm ordering it and it's with me in an hour. I think a lot of people don't really understand when we say that these guys really have just chipped away at this problem slowly over time. And the way this thing looked seven, ten years ago, a lot of people wouldn't believe it if you told them some of these stories. Can you want to sit in your house and you want to order a delivery? (laughs) Who's going to fulfill that order? (laughs) You can find the guy to fulfill it, you know? Again, looking at that ecosystem wide, sometimes when people are doing things that might look crazy and they they might even fail in Uh attempting to do that, but yeah. they have actually moved the needle that other people can Absolutely. build on top of over time. And we need to yeah. actually step back and appreciate that. That even some mm-hmm. companies that do fail, if they've attempted something that is incredible, whether they fail or not, in terms of when you look at failure in terms of whether they return mm-hmm. capital to the investor, if they've mm-hmm. moved the needle, they've been successful in, mm-hmm. in one way or the other. They've actually done yeah. something that other people can build on top of. And, and that leads Absolutely. me to the question, growth versus profitability. How do you have that balance? You mentioned it seemed growing significantly that even its suppliers cannot cope. And how do you access a company? So, okay, I want this company to be successful, fundamentally right in terms of profitability, but I also want them to take advantage of the market that they're going into and, and growing well. How do you manage as an investor or someone with supporting scale up? entrepreneurs how do you advise in managing the balance between building a profitable fundamentally profitable business but also Mm -hmm. taking advantage of growth look i think this is a tough one because it goes without saying i look at certain i have two stories around this i remember having a conversation with mitchell of interstitch and we were talking about the billion dollar valuation right and he was saying he knows a couple of businesses in other parts of the world like the middle east etc started, you know, Interstitch is what, 19 years old at this point, started in the last three years. They do one vertical of the things that Interswitch does. They're not the size of Interswitch. They're valued two, three times more. 
right? They're able to attract capital in different ways or essentially more quickly and more efficiently than an African company would be able to. So I think this problem is a very sort of real one. And if you can't attract the capital, you can't even fund growth. On the other side of it, I think he will also be a proponent, um, and he has been a couple of times when in chats, around just sort of, so if you're building a business in Africa, then you almost don't have the luxury, right, of focusing on growth, ignoring your profitability, your unit mm-hmm. economics, because you are building in such a volatile environment. You're building on an environment where it's, you know, there are many things that could potentially come and scupper you. It's potentially the infrastructure. It's potentially the regulatory, right? The number of banks today that their profitability has been fundamentally reduced and capped mm-hmm. by virtue of just the CBM week so one day and make some sort of pronouncement. So you have, you're dealing with regulatory um, threats to your profitability. You're dealing with infrastructural investments that you potentially need to make and that will hurt your profitability. You're dealing with foreign exchange volatility, potentially. You're dealing with coronavirus, right? And so the point is that there's a luxury that you almost don't have in some ways sometimes around just making sure that fundamentally this thing is profitable and then building, you know, scaling profitably. And the other example I was going to give you is a business like Uber, a business like Jumia that never, that scaled, but never did it profitably. And those guys kind of go, you know, we can talk all day about why and speculate and all of those things, but they kind of got to do that, right? Because they were able to tell a story, attract a certain amount of capital to continue to grow with the promise of that profitability. And I think if you're building in Africa for Africa and frankly by Africans, it's really, really hard to do that. I, I think it's also important that, of course, that you're building a profitable business because that business has to be sustainable, have you know such tiny margins that any of these things that I pointed to potentially also then wipe, wipe those margins away, right? Because those threats are very real for businesses operating in Africa as well. So what's the easy fix? I think ultimately that's a hard thing to answer. Ultimately, the founders kind of need to pick up those pieces. But I know that it's one that none of the scale-up companies that we work with will tell you that pursue growth as an African founder at the expense of profitability. They all ultimately need to get to a point where on a unit basis, the business is profitable. Business is fundamentally profitable. I mean, they have to grow this thing without breaking it. How do I scale it now without breaking it? I cannot sort of chase profitability after I have scale. So also pursuing these growth strategies, I think sometimes it's about competition. And maybe yeah. the African founders also have a little bit of, of luxury in that they often have the frontiers of their markets anyway, not all the time. And so you don't also have that added pressure of, if I don't blitz scale this thing, this other guy who's running at it head to head with me will, will eat my lunch. Sometimes you don't have those dynamics. And so maybe you get to just focus on, let's get this thing fundamentally profitable. Let's make sure it's sustainable. It will also help us to raise capital. And then we'll worry about the growth. I was about to say that maybe African founders don't have that risk. It's not existential Mm -hmm. that someone else is going to get into the market and capture most of the markets before you, especially if it's a winner-takes-most-markets kind of play. Mm-hmm. And so if you don't grow quickly and fast within a very short time, you might not attract the right mm-hmm. capital, which capital is very advantageous in terms of you can get the right talent, yeah. you can experiment mm-hmm. a lot faster than your competition, and you can maybe acquire customers mm-hmm. faster than they. But then you're actually right in the sense that maybe not a lot of African businesses, because then the frontiers of innovation and doing something new, there might not be a lot of competition against them. But how long do you think that will last? We've seen some very good we businesses have, right? now that are doing almost something similar and same stage, mm-hmm. attract the same kind of capital. How yeah. do you as a founder optimize? What are the key things mm-hmm. the founders need to put in place or factors that they need to consider in helping them to make the right decision? Because there's no right or wrong answer here. 
But what, yeah. what do you put into your framework to be able to make the right decision, especially when you have competition that might actually eat your lunch? There's a couple of things that stand out to me. You know, when you, for example, you, you talked about some of those businesses that are fundamentally going head to head. And, you know, you didn't mention, for example, even the Maxes and the OPAs. I think that's where it's potentially the most visible recently in terms of just having that head to head, one company massively funded and, you know, over the others, right? And you have some of these businesses that are having to be a little bit more scrappy in the face of that. But I, I think fundamentally three things. You know, it's interesting when you mentioned Flutterwave Paystack, I didn't actually necessarily agree with you. There's as much of direct competition. I think there's some overlap, but I don't think there's actually as much direct competition as many people think. And so one point that I would point to is differentiation. The opportunity to build, where, even if you're doing payments, you know, look at Okra today or Okra that recently announced um, their seed round with TLCom. A lot of people were saying, is that business fundamentally the same as Flutterwave? And actually, no, it's not. I can see where you may make the comparison. It's APIs, it's payments, but they're actually addressing a slightly different segment of the market. And these businesses have the opportunity and the scope to do that, right? Who knows? Maybe at some point they meet in front in that what Paystack is potentially doing as they as they look for other avenues for growth, then sort of starts to blend with what Flutterwave is doing, starts to blend with what Okra seems to want to be want to be doing. But today I think the market is wide enough. Those companies can actually build because they call them parallel segments and then worry about converging later. But that's a different story, for example, if you look at the logistics guys, right? And specifically the bike healing models. And I think there the way that you differentiate is things like your customer experience things like your brand, things like your customer engagement. And that stuff is expensive. But that's how you differentiate, I think, in those spaces. But I think that differentiation becomes very key. Look at Uber and Lyft. I don't know anybody, my colleagues, my friends in the US, for example, who have a particularly strong preference one way or the other. Uber and Didi in China, again, sort of similar story, right? So my sense is, of course, the competition becomes even more costly where it's hard to find a point of differentiation. So I think that differentiation point to me is fundamentally an important one. I guess what I'm trying to say is you have the opportunity and the scope, I think, somewhat to differentiate a little bit so that the cost of differentiating through things like the way you engage with your customers um, doesn't need to be there or doesn't need to be so high. There's also, I think, fundamentally a value proposition question, right? That sort of produces you know, your classic sort of problem solution in many ways. And what is the core of the problem that the customer has? Or how does your product address that core problem? I think the final thing that I, as I've already mentioned, it, but the other thing I think is ultimately around customer engagement. I think those three things become really interesting ways to think about a market that looks and feels like it's increasingly competitive, but I don't necessarily think that um, there's actually that much direct head-to-head competition um, in most of these startup segments. I want to take you away a bit to another paradoxical question that I have for you today, and I'm, I'm mm-hmm. giving you the hard one. So I know you mentioned a lot of scale-up businesses that you support, mm-hmm. and actually we're going to mm-hmm. talk more about that. What do you mean by scale-up mm-hmm. and, and that definition and your thinking mm-hmm. around it? But this mm-hmm. question around board, constituting a board for startups and mm-hmm. for businesses, especially early-stage companies mm-hmm. and maybe going to scale-up. And the paradox is, how do you make a balance between having complementary skills and experience and expertise on the table, but without making the board to be too much. So the first question is around the board. What, what is the right size of the board that you should have at different stage? But the second question yeah. is, how do you make a balance between having someone who is experienced in a sector that you're probably maybe trying to disrupt compared mm-hmm. to someone who is very innovative or has a startup experience? My first answer in terms of what is the ideal size of a, a board, I think even particularly at the startup stage, I would say as small as possible. <laughs> so that it's important, I think, that the founders are able to have strategic 
boards, advisory, you know, boards that are in an advisory capacity, boards that will help them make the difficult decisions, boards that will keep them engaged, keep them motivated, because I think that is all part of the, the value that I think an early stage partner should be looking at from their board, right? I don't think, you know, boards at the early stage need to serve and should serve some of those governance type functions um, as they do, for example, if you're a later stage company or you are, you know, potentially a, a public company, et cetera, right? And I think sometimes we kind of need to be a little bit mindful of that. The way I think about boards, um, especially at the pretty early stage, is interesting is the framework that we use. So we have advisory boards, not governance boards, is for some of our companies that endeavor. And the framework that we use is really we look for three archetypes. Someone that we call an insider, someone we call an outsider, and someone that we call an organizer in some way. Um, and the insider, to your point, is somebody that will have experience with the particular industry that the startup or the company is in. The outsider is somebody who brings that sort of innovative mindset, will help you sort of push the boundaries, but you don't know much about your sector and you kind of actually quite like it that way. And, and then the third person is an organizer, so someone that sort of helps to make sure that you know the the board is is kept honest with regards to their commitments to you um, and their support of you as a partner going forward. And then of course you know they'll do the usual things like you know uh, you do your your performance reporting, all of that stuff. But I think at that stage you just want your board to be able to help you make better decisions as much as possible. You want your board to help you kick the tires, and you want, you want your board to help you make decisions in a, in a, in a structured way. And you want them to bring, you know, experience and perspectives that allow you to think about what's coming next and potentially how to respond to that. And we find that that insider-outsider organizer framework works pretty well. I don't think that necessarily means that you can only have or you should only have three people on your board. But quite honestly, you can get away with three, maybe four people on your board. I think that's perfect. And one or two of my companies in my portfolio today that even their governance board, so forget Endeavor Advisory Board, which is what I was talking about, but even their governance boards today are maybe three, four people. And that, that's companies that are at series B. I still want to ask a few questions about this board. And again, it's about how would you advise founders to optimize the experience and expertise that is in your board in terms of how would actually be engaged and get, getting the best out of their board members without being the best? Sure. <laughs> sure. I think, well, two things. I think that if you have a board member, you have to be careful how you pick your board members, right? Because I think the role and the commitment that the board is making is something that you need to be so upfront about that there shouldn't really ever be a dynamic around you potentially being a pest. I think if that is it, if that is potentially what's happening, then perhaps the board members don't really understand um, your expectations of them. Um, and perhaps you are not as clear of the commitments going forward. Of course, on the other side, you know, you, one has to sort of respect people's time. But I think, you know, especially at the very early stages, startups should really be looking for people that will give them all the time in the world and roll up their sleeves and view up not as a burden and have sort of almost like a paid forward mindset with regards to their participation on that board. I think that is sort of how I would sort of say that that's a first requirement from my perspective is really ultimately the mindset and that paid forward place. If you're in a place where the board member has a mindset of, you know, I'm bringing all this experience, you know, you know, you just have to sit here and listen. And if you have that dynamic and it's off from the beginning, the beginning, I think, um, I think that's a, that is a pretty important problem. But with regards to how you get the most out of your board, I, I will talk about how I use my board. I think there's a couple of expectations. So set, set a set of commitments and expectations up there. I think communicate with your board formally. And I don't mean necessarily in a formal tone, but communicate with your board, particularly around, on a regular rhythm, right? Um, whether that's quarterly, whether that is twice a quarter, but in a regular rhythm around performance and key challenges that you're having, 
specific asks that you have over the board. I would also say when you have a small board, right, three, four people, it becomes much easier to do. I would say it's important to build one or build a rapport with your board members one-on-one and to very quickly understand that not every problem is a problem for the entire board. Not every solution will come from the entire board, right? So I find today I triage my issues very, very quickly in the back of my mind. And so there's some issues that I'll call a board member on, right? And I'll say, I'm trying to figure this out, what do you think? But if I take those kinds of issues to every board member, I find that usually it's only one. So I'm starting to know what those, what, what, where each board member's interest slash expertise lies with regards to the commitments that we've made to each other and, and the things that I, I need them to do. I think the other thing that's a really interesting trick that I learned, interestingly, when I was at First Bank, was in terms of managing a board, and I suppose this becomes more important the bigger the board gets, but is to spend a lot of time sensitizing. In, for example, you have a board meeting, spend time sensitizing the board to things like performance, any operating updates, etc., outside of the board meeting, so that you're maximizing the time in the board meeting to get the answers to the critical questions that you have looking ahead one. But also because the last thing you want to do is get to a board meeting, limited time, you're usually bumping up against time, people's calendars, and that is where you want to lead the foundation for some complex problem or complex issue. And I find that it works pretty well as well as a practical tip. You're right about that. Actually, a lot of ways in which you get the best from your board members is outside the boardroom, actually. It's outside. It's how, yeah. how much you've engaged with them and giving them a, a lot of um, background information and giving them context before they come to the room and then they make decisions. Uh, yeah. I found that really helpful. Yeah. When I was running my business then in the UK, my first startup, I was very lucky to have good board members and contributing nice. a lot. And one of them, actually, never forget David Pritchard, is an investor, part of the board. And and he will actually spend a day a month mm-hmm. with us, come to our office and spend a day yeah. a month just yeah. interacting and socializing with my team, with me, and have dinner with us. Yeah. And then also ask me personal question, how are you doing? What keeps you away at, uh, awake at night? Yeah. How are you getting along with this? Yeah. And, and he knows a lot about many things. Yeah. So that when we're in the boardroom, he's saying we're debating, mm-hmm. we're, we're engaging, and he's actually contributing in a way that is yeah. far better than I would have expected. Uh, the, yeah. Let me ask you a question. Actually. Go on. Yeah. Pritchard. So with regards to him coming into your office, meeting your team once a month, et cetera, I'm curious as to whether that was an upfront commitment that you set or it was something that he just said, look, this is what I like to do. And it ended up, you thought, wow, okay, this works really well. That's a good question, actually. So my business then was on-demand food delivery okay. business where we use technology to organize delivery of food from top quality restaurants. It'd be like Just Eat Bar for mm-hmm. good, good quality restaurants. Mm-hmm. David's mm. background is uh, he, he used to run and he actually founded Open Table in Europe. So he used ah, to run okay. Open Table in Europe. So he had that mm-hmm. industry experience, also innovative, and he's exited mm-hmm. that and he's and he has free time. And then he invested in my mm-hmm. business. But I, I did ask him actually, we, we need one of your money. We need you to help us to because mm-hmm. I've never run this kind of business before. We need your expertise mm-hmm. in some level. And he said, okay, I was I can spend a day a month to to just come and help you in your, yeah. in, your in your business. So. It was kind of mucho. I did ask that, but I wasn't expecting a day a month. But then I think what also helped was that we got along well. Uh-huh. So we got along on a more personal level. Yeah. So even after I left the business, I still see him regularly. We catch up. I would drive all the way to his house in Oxford. Uh-huh. And we spend like a day together just uh, drinking and talking and uh-huh. just catching up on life generally. And I was asking him questions. Uh-huh. So it was a combination of, yes, I set a little bit of expectation, but he had expertise more than everyone in the, on the board. And he had a time mm-hmm. because he's existed business and he's just spending time investing in other businesses. I think that's a fantastic story. 
So, but the other yeah. bit is that one has to be careful about that though, because I mean, he, David maybe understood the difference between operating at that strategy level and not being too much in the operating level mm-hmm. of the business where it's going to get in the way. In the weeds. Yeah. Because some people might actually put the board mm-hmm. member that doesn't understand that, uh, they might get in the way, especially if they have time in their hand, like David had then, and he, he exited. It's not working. It's just, <laughs> yeah. And then a board yeah. member might see that yeah. as this and that job for me. And they started getting in the way, like they become like the another CEO yeah. who is trying to make decisions for yeah. you. And David never crossed that line. So that's the bit that one yeah. has to be careful about when Absolutely. you're engaging with your board member that you need to keep it at that strategy level rather than operating level. Yeah. And I think it probably helped that David himself, he had been an entrepreneur himself. So, you know, I suppose it's probably easier for a board member in that capacity you know, as the CEO of the business, et cetera. But that's really interesting. And I think, you know, you pulled out quite a few things in there. But fundamentally, the rapport was there. You had a decent dynamic. The commitments were there up front. So in as much as you didn't say come into the office once a month, you said, look, this is not just a check, right? So I, I really love that story. I think, I think a lot of startup founders, especially if it's your first company, right, don't understand quite how much, you know, you're considering them for your board as much as they're considering you for the board. And how much you need from those kind of people, actually, to give you perspective. Because as a founder, you can easily get into the narrow view that you have. You just wake up in the morning, you're thinking of something mm-hmm. and you get that narrow view without the context. I, I remember this time I was deliberating whether we should go into another aspect of the business. And I called David up and said, I'm thinking about this. And he said, hey, you have one job, one job only. Prove this thing that you're trying to do. And rather than doing too many things, you're getting distracted into this one. It looks good, but it will draw you to, to another way. And he, gave me, and he gave me an example of how in their own business at Open Table, how they make that kind of decisions as well, how it has helped them to be focused on what on their core, even though the other bit looks attractive. And that perspective helped me to be able to make the right decision because I was thinking, oh, there's an advantage, we should do that. And so being able to have people like that on your board who you can call and you respect their opinion, by the way. And the other bit is, even though there's sometimes that I would disagree with David, he wouldn't say that, okay, you have to do what I tell you to do or, or get annoyed. He would yeah. tell me, hey, Dutton, it's your company. Mm-hmm. You are the CEO. I will just give you yeah. advice and then you can go on and do mm-hmm. this. And they come to the board and they can convince all of us. We vote for it, but it's your call. And, he, and I respect that because he was able to do see you as a CEO. Mm-hmm. I've read a lot about what you do at Endeavor and you mentioned scale up. And I, I think it'd be good to talk about what does that mean and how mm-hmm. is that different from startups. But I also want to delve into Endeavor mm-hmm. goes and support business. It's almost like you're an investor, but you're investing, you mm-hmm. know, you're investing support and non-capital resources. I see companies like Endeavor as your investor, you're investing in all these scale up businesses, but I see you mm-hmm. doing it as support first. Capital second. So you, you provide a lot of support, mm-hmm. a lot of resources, a lot of expertise, networking yeah. and things. And I mean, your proposition to those companies is beyond capital. It's actually not capital initially. Yeah. yeah. And it's not too dissimilar from what we do as VC, where we go to companies, yeah. we, we do capital first and then resources and support second. Mm-hmm. And the question I wanted to learn is maybe what are the key things that you advise VCs like us to be able to, to learn from you in terms of the right mm-hmm. support that businesses need? that you guys are good at? So I think you're right that we kind of do it the opposite way around, where we do the support first and the network first and and all the things that come along with that, which I'm happy to sort of delve into, and then the capital second. So you can't get our capital unless you're an endeavor entrepreneur. And if you are, we pre-commit to your rounds and and all of those those good things, right? And our goal is really to say, once you're within the endeavor community, we want to 
help you raise smart capital. We want to help you raise frictionless capital. And that includes our own check. But if you take a step back with regards to Endeavor, I suppose there's, first of all, there's even the why. We invest out of our fund, Endeavor Catalyst. Endeavor Catalyst is in Celluland, Flutterwave, a few other companies, I believe, they're in East Africa. They're also in Swivel out of Egypt. But Endeavor Catalyst is effectively a sister vehicle, right? But really the core of Endeavor and what, what Endeavor was when it got started 22 years ago now is as a non-profit. And so the non-profit arm of Endeavor basically has a motivation or a mission around economic growth, economic development, has conviction around the fact that the way that you drive growth is through entrepreneurship from the ground up. You know, and also, of course, encouraging and helping to build a culture of entrepreneurship in a vibrant ecosystem, right? Where you have an emerging sort of group and, and class of, of scale up businesses. So, the mindset and the beginnings and the culture of Endeavor really ultimately starts with this motive around development, right? And if that's the case, of course, capital accumulation is one tool. But of course, there are other things around, like you said, you mentioned earlier, your ability to find the right talent, which is Probably the hardest thing that many of the entrepreneurs that we deal with actually have to try to solve. There's also market access, whether it's local market access, is so selling more efficiently into the market that you're in, or it is cross-border market access, right, where you're trying to, you know, for example, Paga, I think, has said this publicly, they've acquired a security they're building out in Mexico. Amigo is building out in Brazil. That's public knowledge. Having access to and not needing to start from zero when, as a founder, you then start to spend time in Mexico becomes valuable for businesses that are trying to do that. Of course, Mexico, Brazil is quite far away. There are quite a few founders here that are building into Egypt, building into Kenya, building in South Africa. And because we have Endeavor affiliates in that office, in those, in those markets, um, my, my colleagues in those offices are able to help. So with regards to what VCs might be able to learn, I, you know, I think it's probably a little bit both ways. We work with quite a few VCs and the ways that we work with the VCs, a couple of ways. First of all, is around even just helping us identify, select Endeavor entrepreneurs. Um, we have some pretty clear criteria around what an Endeavor entrepreneur looks like. There's a growth criteria. Um, there's a traction criteria or the track record criteria. There's also the business model criteria, fundamentally sustainable. And so that comes back to your point a little bit around profitability. Not always profitable, but sustainable. There's also something around mindsets and culture. So do we think that these are the people that are going to be part of helping us build and drive that culture of entrepreneurial leadership and of giving back? So the entrepreneurs that will build and scale their companies, hopefully they'll exit. And then once they've done that, they'll come back and look at their ecosystems and say, okay, so what else can I invest in? Who else can I support? with advice and mentorship and sort of keep that cycle going. And so, well, the VCs, some of them who are also endeavorers, help us with that because, of course, you know, as you might imagine, the VCs tend to have very crisp articulations and very crisp understandings of the underlying business models and the underlying sectors and segments. So we rely very heavily on VCs within our mentor network to help us select. And then once the entrepreneurs are in, we work with the VCs around what we call capital mentoring, right? So you're a VC who has experience investing in fintech businesses and, you know, Latin American fintech. So what that means is that when a fintech business out of Nigeria is trying to raise, you, you know, the business, you understand the model, you can see what's happening in some of the other markets that might be further ahead, but you probably can't invest in that company. But that means you're perfect as a capital mentor, right? Because it means that as the entrepreneur is refining their story, as they're kicking the tiles on their model, as they're thinking about their growth plans, as they are asking a bunch of questions around which investors to talk to as they're reviewing term sheets, you're perfect. So we do quite a bit of things like that. When I talk to VCs, I always say, you know, view us really, I think, ultimately as a value creation partner. You know, in some ways, we kind of create the value before because there are a number of reasons that will bring companies to us and say, look, these guys are too early for us. 
we love them though and we think they'll be perfect as part of endeavor so why don't you help them and they then go on to invest in the businesses once they reach the right sort of stage for the vc that introduced them in the first place on the other side we have some vcs that are like i've got this great entrepreneur in our portfolio they would be perfect for endeavor they're at the scale-up stage and i think that you know thinking about their sort of next phase of growth some of the things that you guys do will be perfect for helping them achieve that so we have a pretty symbiotic relationship with VCs. And I think that finally the most successful VCs often, so the ones that the entrepreneurs tend to have very sort of strong referral, frankly, around, tend to be the ones that do all of the things we've already been talking about. So tend to be the ones that will open up their networks to the entrepreneurs, will be the ones that will spend time with them, understanding their, their business models, crafting their stories in the next round, help them think about and expose them to solutions and, and, and networks and relationships that might help them solve some of the problems that they're having. So in many ways, I think you're right. We, we, it's kind of the same. We just do certain things first. And so I think I'm not sure that there's that much that I can teach the VC community. I think the, the more successful VPs, VCs rather do this anyway. There's so many other parts of question I would like to ask you, but I don't want to take too much of your time. But I won't let you go until I ask you a question around work-life balance, which I know you are mm-hmm. quite good at in terms of the way some of the things that you put on Twitter. I just want to mm-hmm. ask you, what are the key things that a founder who is running a business that is doing like 350 miles per hour and lots of firefighting going on, especially in this time of COVID, how would you advise them to, to be conscious about their mental health? You know, that I have work-life balance. I don't know about that. I'm not sure anybody does. I think balance shifts. And what you're looking for is to have over, you know, in the medium term, in the longer term, you want to sort of know that you're pretty much level setting over time. So being unafraid to claim time for yourself when you have a bit more bandwidth, right? And understanding that when you have less bandwidth and you're going at that 350 miles per hour, you know, being conscious enough and respectful, frankly, of your of yourself enough that you know that this is time I'm going to claim that. So that's the way I sort of manage. So I don't look for day-to-day or minute-to-minute or hour-to-hour work-life balance. I sort of, you know, I, I look at my work-life over a month or look at my work-life over two weeks or, or maybe even a week and I say, how do I sort of create balance over that, that, that period? With regards to, to the founders, particularly at this period, I think the answers are probably the same as, as for everybody. A couple of tips. So for me, I always do little things like deliberately scheduling in time for myself and time for my family and time for my husband and all of those things. For example, there are blocks in my calendar, right? And of course, sometimes you kind of have to give those away, but I'm very, very judicious about not giving them away. And so if, for example, dinner time is at seven and I know dinner takes half an hour, 45 minutes at home and seven to seven thirty or seven to seven forty-five is literally blocked out in my calendar. So you can't even schedule that time with me for starters. I think there's also something of self-discipline that needs to happen around making sure that, you know, outside of scheduled time that you yourself are not allowing these other important events and you're not allowing your work to bleed into the, that time as well. There's some founders that find that in order to do that, it means that they have to think about their days as starting slightly earlier and potentially ending a little bit later. I think that's also fine to the extent that you're building in those breaks to a certain extent. And then also to the extent that you're managing for balance over a period rather than necessarily managing for day-to-day balance. That would be my advice. That, that's a very helpful advice. I'm going to hand with two questions. Which book are you reading at the moment? Or have you read lately? Oh, I'm reading a novel. I don't read nearly enough novels. And now I can't remember the name of the novel. It's called The Water Dancer by Tanahisi Coates. Tanahisi Coates. I know it is not a startup book. It's not an entrepreneurship book. But I find that I needed a break 
and I needed to be able to lose myself in my reading. So I just started reading that last week. Before that, I read I read again the hard thing about hard things because I love that book. Interesting. Uh, great. That's a good book as well. It's a fantastic book. Um, yeah. yeah, I agree with you about re- reading non-startup books. Uh, actually, I'm a history buff. I've been reading the history of the Yorubas recently. Oh, nice. I've been, yeah, and it was written in the 1800s. So I've been reading that again, oh. actually. I've read it before, but I'm just reading it again, just going through, again. just yeah. getting perspective to, into what, what has happened before now, rather than okay. getting to... Excellent. So the last final question, <laughs> what view have, have you held before now that you had to change recently? I have become, in, when I say recently, I mean in the last four weeks, a little bit more conscious of, and I say this with all humility, of the important role that call them non-innovation businesses play in our economy. So when we talk about the SMEs, I think that the startups and the scale-ups and the innovation sector is really important. And I firmly held hold the view that it is wrong to conflate a startup with an SME. But I think that in the last, especially in the last week to two weeks, I'm a lot more conscious of the fact that the ecosystem, the entrepreneurship ecosystem and its viability, its vibrancy actually to a certain extent relies on the existence of all of these different businesses because they all play different roles from an impact from a job creation standpoint, et cetera. So that's my view that's shifted very, very recently. That's fantastic. Uh, hello, it's been great having a chat with you. You know, I can actually go on talking to you with you for the next two hours. <laughs> Same, I And But I think you're going to come back again to the show and we have Love so much stuff to be able to, to discuss. But thanks for coming. I'll define scale up at that point. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I know that I'm going to get a lot of emails on that. Scale up. But thanks a lot for this. Thanks for listening to this episode. Before you go, I'd like you to subscribe for this show wherever you listen to your podcast. And leave a review if you can. You can also follow me on Twitter at drdotun, that is D-R-D-O-T-U-N, or through the website drdotun.com.